Daddy's flown across the ocean, leaving just a memory. And welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars, some Pink Floyd lyrics for everyone in honor of F1's hop back across the pond to jolly old England. I'm Drew Scanlon joining me, Rob Zachney. How are you, Rob? Not too bad. Uh, Looking forward to the race. Yes, indeed. Uh, Daniel Dwyer is on assignment today, but we shall soldier on. By the way, as you can probably tell, I'm getting over an illness, probably COVID. I have not gotten my PCR test result back, uh, but uh, I think I'm on hopefully the other side of these uh, these symptoms. Uh, but apologies for the voice and the definite mental lapses I'm going to have in this episode. Uh, if you are new to this podcast, a very warm welcome to you. And if you are new to Formula One itself, we recommend listening to our preseason primer episode that assumes no prior F1 knowledge. Uh, and explains how the sport works and who everybody is. So if you'd like to go back and listen to that, it's episode 178. Also, this show is supported entirely by our audience over at patreon.com slash shiftf1, where every month we release bonus podcasts and videos exclusively for our patrons that cover racing documentaries and films, F1 video games, experiments with other racing series, and a lot of weird things. So if you'd like to support the show and get access to all that fun stuff, head over to patreon.com slash patreon.com, that is, slash shiftf1, or click the link in the show notes, we had a great uh, episode uh, that went up on Friday, this most recent Friday, uh, about the Eric Bana ode to rallying, Love the Beast, which is an interesting little documentary. Uh, Rob, you were not there um, uh, to record with us, uh, and I, you have not seen it, correct? I have not. Okay. I, I'm, I, I wonder what you would think. Yeah, I do, I need, I do need to hit it up. Um, I didn't have time to watch yeah. it, uh, and once it was off the docket, uh, it just sort of fell off the priority list. But it, it, like, I am, you know, I love me the movie stars who like chase absurd racing dreams. Yes, yes, this is definitely one of those. But like, I don't know, it's it's got some different stuff going on. Uh, very watchable, ninety minutes. Um, and boy, the 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 opening credits, the names on the opening credits are are just not to be missed. Um, also not to be missed are, uh, title sponsors this week on Patreon. Um, there are different tiers that you can join over there. Uh, and these fine folks have joined the top tier, which gets their names on the side of this car. And they are in ascending order of the number of characters in their username. We have Sniggs, Max Voltar, David Mule, Gnarly Goat, Jason Kelly, at Team Blackjack, Alan McCrary, Alex Goucher, Bailey Foote, Drew Stewart, Erica Siegel, Olivia Evans, Troy Stammer, at Talking Autos, Circuit Demon, Jordy's Army, or Gordy's Army. Not sure if that's a soft or a hard G. Umberto Roca, Michael Maves, William Rumpf, Jason Chadwick, Tanner McCleave, Abdullah Althani, Abraham Getchell, TelemetryDuck.com, Iron Station Studios, Pyrites Card Castle, and with 22 characters, Octothorpe Bunny Crimes. Thank you to everyone who has uh, supported us on Patreon. Again, that's the only way we are supported. So thank you. You make this well. We also get a lot of possible. kind words, so I think there's a lot of support that we value. But the thank money, you, the money's the best, honestly. <laughs> uh, let's take it to the news, shall we? Before we talk about the Silverstone Circuit, uh, big news in the driver market. I guess. Well. <laughs> bigger there? news would be a what? move 
Uh, Pierre Gasly is remaining with AlphaTauri for the 2023 season. Um, oh, by the way, if you are hearing uh, things knock around, those are, I think it is like time, time of the season for acorns to drop onto the roof of this building that I'm recording in. Uh, so that's what that is. Um, but yeah, Pierre Gasly, AlphaTauri. 2023 this is a this is a no-brainer what do you think rob oh yeah i mean like there's no uh there was nowhere for him to go right now uh so it's one of those things where i i do think long term he's he's gonna be angling for a better ride but he's like one of those guys who's waiting for a reshuffle in the driver's market yeah absolutely uh which is i guess maybe then good for him that it's only a one-year contract yeah i i would uh, my suspicion would be that like AlphaTauri would probably like getting him uh, on a longer contract, but like, I think he's I, I think he's now in a position where, uh, with a couple retirements, uh, maybe some people being shuffled out of some other teams, he will be uh, a very uh, a very highly regarded prospect. Absolutely, and there there are, there are retirements on the have to on be. the horizon. Have we got to be. we got Hamilton, we got Vettel, we got Alonso. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so good for him. Um, next up here, Formula One has been talking a lot about their environmental our environmental and sustainability stuff for many years now, probably since they were acquired by Liberty. This has been kind of a, a, a marketing goal of theirs. Um, they introduced like the, the hybrid since 2014 branding uh last year i think uh now we're gonna get a lot of net zero by 2030 branding uh at a lot of their events maybe on tv who knows um because they've uh just released a a few more targets a few more i don't know we're doing this kind of things and and the big one here is uh synthetic and sustainable fuel to be introduced in 2026. Not a lot of details here, so we don't have so much to go into, but just kind of a, a thing to watch. Um, they, Formula One, are, it seems, cognizant of the fact that, you know, just because your fuel is synthetic doesn't mean it's good for the environment. Uh, so they're, they're keen to point out that... Um, the aim, quote, this is uh, from a source that the BBC is quoting, the aim is to be zero emission in the life cycle of the fuel. Um, this fuel is designed to be drop-in, which means that you can just use it in place of standard fossil fuels, um, which, you know, is is the, you know, the, the goal being that this would just sweepingly replace uh, the oil in all of our oil-using machinery. Um, this is kind of like, I feel one of the areas that F1 and racing development can still be relevant. It's, I think the like mechanical engineering part of it is maybe a tougher sell these days when everyone's got a bunch of computing power. Um, but it's, I don't know, it's, it's, to me, this seems like the, the, the frontier for this kind of stuff. How does this all strike you, Rob? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm of a couple different minds, right? Like, like one, I, I tend to look at these things with a really reflexive cynicism. 
Yeah. Uh, and part of it is that some of it is like just a background as an American. Uh, the sort of ethanol boondoggle of like turning mm. uh, like like corn crops basically into uh, like an oil additive, um, you know, under the idea that, that would be more sustainable, more environmental friendly uh, was was sort of laughable from the beginning. But we kind of stuck with it uh, like with that background in mind. I do look at a lot of these things as whenever you move it to scale. Uh, it's going to be so easy for these things to be sort of co-opted uh, by the same bad actors who've always been in place or uh, become a thing that people get invested in trying to pretend it works even when it really doesn't. Uh, so like, I tend to look at these things with a, a lot of skepticism. That being said, uh, I don't think for a lot of reasons you're ever going to completely get rid of internal combustion engines. Like it's just, it's too, yeah. it's it, like, it is too portable. It's too much power. That's like highly portable and can exist in areas of like uh weak, weak infrastructure. So I think there's going to be a need for things like this. And if you can solve the problem of the fact that burning those fuels generates uh, releases carbon uh, into the atmosphere if you can sort of have that like cycle be be net net neutral or or net negative, uh, then yeah, that goes a long way to uh, like handling that problem that's going to come up as we move into the electrified era uh, for for vehicles and engines. And I think F one is a decent place to do it because like I like I I do think because the major industries around this are so freaking reticent to make moves unless forced, there's some value in having someone, uh, an R and D led, uh, sector of the industry, just go and like figure out what that solution is, uh, that can then be ported back to traditional, uh, auto manufacturers. Like, and an extremely visible one. Um, and one that like, clearly cares about performance and speed and you know that kind of stuff that say a consumer would so i am curious if this also dovetails with you know porsche has sunk a fortune into this research Hmm. um and i think porsche might actually be bankrolling a facility in like south america to generate um like these types of biofuels or, or like carbon neutral fuels, because the, the idea being that uh, for Porsche, like Porsche have a problem in that a lot of the perceived value of, of Porsche cars is that the aftermarket for them is incredibly strong. Uh, like Porsches hold on to their value uh, to a ridiculous degree. Um, like, like, you know, Drew, you and I could probably get a 911. It would be from 1985. Uh, but like <laughs> the the 1985 911 that's like eh in terms of how it's been cared for that moves into normal person car prices that's how much they like hold on to their value uh, that will not be the case if you know we move toward a world in 10 15 years where it's like your gas station's been ripped up and there's nothing but chargers there uh, yeah. so then what are you going to do so I think Porsche sunk a ton of money into this and remember unless something has changed. Porsche is still doing that like cat at the door thing of like, am I going to come into F1 or not? So (laughs) like, this is also an initiative that matches uh, really nicely with 
a prospective partner that F1 has been hoping would dive in for ages. That's a, yeah, that's a really good point. On the other hand, Porsche is basically VW, and you know what VW is famous for when it comes to emissions <laughs> is lying their fucking asses off. Uh, so, I mean, again, the auto industry, motorsports, it's a land of contrasts. Well, speaking of fossils, what's this next news story, Rob? So, Nelson Piquet, uh, a three-time world champion uh, from the 1980s, um, Brazilian driver, apparently made comments on a Brazilian language, uh, a Portuguese language podcast, uh, like last year that were recently translated into English because I think the uh, Brazil editor of like motorsports.com heard it and it was like, oh shit. And translate it because on this podcast, uh, PK used the Portuguese equivalent for the N-word to describe Hamilton, particularly as he's talking about uh, the race at Silverstone. Uh, the the uh, the, the ha- saying that Hamilton's move, you know, the 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 complete Red Bull had about Hamilton's move on Verstappen uh, at right. at uh, at Silverstone, but uses a uh, a, a racial slur uh, to to refer to Hamilton, and immediately uh, like F one like as like its spokespeople have uh, you know con- condemned that language. Um, Hamilton has been very pointed and he gave a very good statement where he sort of pointed out people have had years to like learn and revise their language and reconsider their attitudes. Um, we're, we're past that now. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that of course makes this extra, uh, and I don't want to trivialize it by saying it's messy, but there, there is a weird, like, uh, you know, pit uh, row uh, context of this, which is that Nelson's daughter Kelly uh, is Max Verstappen's uh, partner, and so there is also a weird dynamic of uh, you know Hamilton's major rival and nemesis in the sport, uh, his you know erstwhile father-in-law is also over here just making outrageously bigoted comments about Hamilton. Um, I don't think we've heard from Max yet. And my suspicion is in general that like F1 drivers, I think as we've seen with the, um, uh, you know, we races one stuff. They're not beacons of courageous progressivism. Uh, So, I, I do think we'd probably be uh, lucky to get anything from Max, even as strong as his usual, like, I think that is not correct uh, type stuff. So that is that is where that stands. Um, also, this came up a bit when we talked about um, And We Go Green, uh, which was the Formula E documentary. But do you remember mm-hmm. that horrific detail um, that when Nelson PK Jr. won the Formula E World Championship, Nelson Sr. was like in town when that happened, like didn't come see his son race and didn't come see him 
wins championship. Wow, like, I, I don't remember that, but jeez. Yeah, so like Nelson Sr. is like there, there's kind of no way around it. Like in a variety of measures, seems like an atrocious person. Um, and here he may have finally like crossed the kind of line that makes you persona non grata. Uh, at least within F1 world. I'm also very curious how it's going to play in Brazil, honestly. Um, PK Sr. is has thrown, unsurprisingly, has thrown all in uh, with uh, Herr uh, Bolsonaro. And ah. so, yeah, so he's basically, like, uh, gone full, like, Brazilian MAGA uh, is basically mm-hmm. where he's he's ended up. But the thing is... Hamilton's also wildly popular in Brazil. I think like it was just earlier this year they gave him like honorary citizenship. That's uh, right. The Senna family um, really holds him in high esteem. So I am like this is one of those things that cuts across like both changing international um, lines and attitudes in the sport, but I'm also curious how it cuts across um, like br- like Brazilian politics and sensibilities because I am like. Those racial dynamics and divides are very real uh, there. So, too, seems to be the esteem with with which that, like, a lot of people in that country hold Lewis Hamilton. So, uh, we'll we'll see what ongoing fallout uh, there, there is from this. Well, I don't need to hear from Nelson Piquet ever again. But let's go to something more fun. Uh, the Goodwood Hill Climb which we mentioned last week, uh, has been happening. Um, this is, uh, there are, there are two Goodwood events that are notable. I think, uh, over the year, there's the, the, uh, Goodwood, uh, festival of speed, which is happening now and then the Goodwood revival. The revival is all about like old, old cars, vintage cars, you know, historic racers. The festival of speed centers around the hill climb event, uh, which is this like, um, very short. It's like, you know, it takes a lot of cars, like a minute and change to run up this hill. Um, but it's got spectators all along it. Uh, and it's just like this cavalcade of crazy cars, uh, old cars you remember, uh, new cars that are prototypes, just all kinds of weird stuff. Big old trucks, you know, you name it. It's not about speed necessarily. Uh, it's kind of just about the showcase and, uh, uh it's like, a, it's like an air show basically, um, that I would, I would love to attend. Uh, anyway, sometimes you get um, cars that uh, that uh, sub- that turn a lot of heads for their speed, um, and they're even though it's not re- really a a speed competition, there is still a uh, uh, a record for the hill climb. It was set in 2019 by a Volkswagen uh, electric car, the ID dot R, uh, and. Before that, uh, Nick Heidfeld had said it uh, in 1999, but the record has just been broken again by a uh, a car. It's electric. It's a it's a McMurty car, which I assume is one of these like very specialized, bespoke you know racetrack manufacturers. Um, but what really uh, got my eye was that it is a fan car. Not like the fan of a sport, like a fanatic, but like a literal fan. It is a, there is a duct, there's there's, there are fan. whirling blades here. If you recall the, sorry, what Rob? 
Sorry, is it like a fan on the underside or like... Yes. Oh, hell yeah. So you may recall the Brabham fan car uh, that was introduced for one Formula One race and then immediately banned because it trounced everyone. It literally has like a... Uh, like a <laughs> it looks like, you know, a, a room fan that you would have, you know, in your windowsill strapped to the back of an F1 car. And it does... It's, there's a... It, the fan's purpose is to suck air from beneath the car uh, to increase downforce. So if you have a low air pressure under your car, your car sticks to the road better. That was banned in Formula One, but there are no such rules at Goodwood. And so McMurdy, uh, with their electric car, made a big old fan under it and uh, broke the record. So uh, it is this weird-looking single cockpit uh it almost looks like it, it looks like the aspect ratio is wrong Dude, it's so it's such a weird thing i'm looking at it it's like a it, Le Mans car. It, yeah it looks like a compressed uh like lama prototype but also maybe just because like the um like just the the unadorned like silver steel that makes it look like an aircraft that just rolled off the line it just yeah. the entire thing feels like both like futuristic but but archaic right it's like a retro futurist race car yeah absolutely it looks like it's out of uh the warhammer universe yeah. or something i don't know um driver max chilton so bringing it back to formula one uh good to see him i guess so that's cool. I'll put that uh, link in this, the in the show notes. The it's, video it's wild to watch. is impressive and then terrifying. Like there's <laughs> there's just a point where I'm like, well, first of all, it doesn't help that so the Goodwood Hill climb, and I always sort of wonder about this. Uh, they don't have they have hay bales lining the track, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of them, but they're they're nonetheless hay bales. Uh, not exactly the. Um, what is it like that? The Hesco barriers, uh, in, Armco's, yeah, in in F one, yeah. um, but or then the safer, the, yeah, yeah, and then there's also that part where like you come up the hill and there's like a a stone wall that juts out into the track and there's just a little kink, but like you look at the speed this thing takes and I'm like I'm surprised there aren't more like historic car demolishing accidents at Goodwood, um. You know, if not, if if not, uh, crowds being sent fleeing from like whirling bits of antique. Yeah, uh, I think Nigel Mansell was also back uh, at Goodwood to drive. Uh, I think his his championship winning car uh, up the up the hill climb. But not only was he back, so too was his mustache. Oh hell yeah, he has he has grown back. So he he lo- he actually looks very much the same as race he did tradition. In the 90s. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, let's throw it back to the track walk. Rob, what's up with Silverstone? Well, we're heading to Silverstone, and Silverstone is uh, one of the oldest circuits on the calendar. It is built on the bones of an RAF airbase uh, within a few years of the end of World War II. Uh, they started doing races there, and it hosted the first uh, British Grand Prix in 1948, and it's basically been a part of the F1 landscape ever since uh the, the strangely enough they did do they rotated the british gp uh between uh silverstone uh brands hatch and then a, a circuit i hadn't heard of uh Eintree. uh but since 1987 uh silverstone has been the home of the british gp 
despite Bernie Ecclestone's occasional attempts to strangle it. Uh, <laughs> it's it's one of those places where like everyone loves Silverstone, and then the battle days of like late period Bernie trying to like sto- extort every uh, like event runner that he possibly could. Uh, you know, he would very pointedly like hold a gun to the head of an event that was beloved and be like, well, you have to make millions of dollars appear or I'm going to send it somewhere else. In this case, he's going to send it to Donington, which is interesting because Donington, I don't think, was still a real grade one circuit or at least wasn't up to par with um, what you would need to host a modern F1 race uh, with, the, with the kind of tendency you get. Uh, so that fell, that fell through if memory serves because I want to say like, it was one of those deals where Donington had the rights to the race, provided they could do a ton of expensive repairs, and then their financing fell apart. Um, might mm. have been as part of like the financial crisis. I think this is all around that same time. Anyway, point is Silverstone now uh, its future seemingly secure as uh, the home of the British GP and is basically the home team, uh, the 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 homecoming race for a ton of the teams on the grid, uh, given how heavily uh, F1 is based in southern uh, southern England. So the layout itself has changed a lot over the years, uh, which is you know true of all the old circuits. Um, when they started racing there, Silverstone was basically a trace outline around the airfield. Uh, it almost described like an irregular rectangle. Um, and I gather it was becoming like just incredibly, incredibly fast. Uh, so they started adding more technical uh, sections to it uh, in the 1990s. Uh, by the 1990s, they sort of lopped off the eastern portion of the track, um, which it sort of came to a corner. And now they introduced uh, two of the like, kind of an iconic section of Silverstone, maybe the defining section. Uh, we remember the sweeping right-hander of cops where uh, Max and Lewis got into it uh, last year. Uh, that also leads into what was added in the 1990s, the S's of Maggots and Beckett's. Um, which is a you know series of S corners that like if you if your entry is compromised you'll be slow the whole way through so it's it's really key to get cops into Mags and Beckett's completely right. Uh, the western side of the track was cut into the infield and turned into a more technical sector of short straights and and fairly tight turns. I want to say in the 1990s they did a lot of this where it was like you know what would really solve whatever problems we're having here on a track would be a couple of just random hairpins we we threw in uh, to, to the circuit layout. That didn't that didn't end up sticking uh, for too long. They revised it pretty heavily again in the 2000s. They cut way deeper uh, into the infield and created a series of uh, like sh- like fast faster corners, a couple of very tight turns, and then exits onto uh, really critical straights. I think when you take all these revisions together, they give Silverstone kind of an odd feeling. I've, I've mentioned this before. Um, so until fairly recently, the start finish straight used to be out of uh, Woodcott leading the cops. It was on that straight on the north side of the uh, circuit. And when you drive there, like the old grid is still there. The old pits are still there. I think there's still there's still series that use that as the start finish uh, area. Uh, and you still have like the, the main grandstands there. And so driving around silverstone or looking at the looking at a race around silverstone it has this odd feeling of you're racing on a circuit that describes a bit of a bow tie 
and the entire thing feels a little bit mirrored in some ways. It feels that like you go you go past a start finish line twice uh, over the course of the race, and in a weird way, even some of like the corner sections, I've always sort of felt kind of echo each other uh, as hmm. you as you go around the track. Like that, uh, there's like that. Max and Beckett's have a counterpart uh, now in that infield section uh, when you when you go into the revised Abbey corner uh and through farm into village like everything feels a bit like it repeats uh at a lap at at silverstone uh which gives it kind of a kind of a quirky quirky quality um as far as uh you know as far as like the lap around there uh itself goes one of the like the first really key section uh is in that infield section uh, it, it leads down through what's called the loop, which is this new corner that basically forms the end of the loop that now leads you out of the infield section. That exits onto the Wellington Strait, named because that used to be one of the active runways uh, in the in the RAF days. But the Wellington Strait is kind of your first really critical DRS zone uh, on the lap. You will see a ton of action there. Uh, because if you can get the preceding corners right and come out on someone's heels uh, down Wellington, that straight is just long enough uh, for you to execute an overtake by the time you reach Brooklyn's uh, and then enter the like really tight sort of switchback hairpin of Luffield. Uh, that sort of feeds you out into a sweeping, uh, fat, like gentle right-hander of Woodcoat, then the straight, and then cops. Um, we all remember what the dynamics there are uh, from like uh, Hamilton and Verstappen sort of going wheel to wheel there. It is a very fast uh, right hand, right hand corner. Um, and it's wide enough to give drivers options yeah. to do, to do stuff, to try things, to, yep. to try and fail at things. It in, yeah, it invites, uh, it, it invites some adventure, um, mm-hmm. but you can't push it too hard because again, Maggots and Beckett's are probably the most critical section on the circuit in terms of like lap time, because if you get the racing line wrong at any part of it, if you understeer through any part of it, you will be offline for the six for the succeeding corners. Uh, so you can just shed tons of uh, speed through Maggots and Beckett's if you get it wrong. But likewise, if you get it right, you can really uh, pick up some uh, pick up some lap time. You you can get gain those those precious tenths uh, out of there. Um, from there, you sort of are, are fed out onto uh, the long hanger straight. Um, you know, it leads to uh, you know a pretty quick right hander uh, at Stowe, and it's not long before you are sort of back at uh, what is now called the Hamilton straight uh, at the at the start finish line. It is a it is a fast course. It certainly favors uh, you know cars that have a lot of straight line speed, but also those fast corners are not forgiving of cars that do not have uh, a pretty decent like downforce uh, setup uh, rigged up. So if a car if a car's arrow uh, is a weak point, this circuit will punish that pretty extensively, uh, but. I would I would argue probably not as extensively as it will punish a car that just doesn't have uh, a lot of torque and horsepower. Well, speaking of uh, teams' uh, efficiencies, deficiencies, got a couple upgrades here 
Alpine has an upgrade coming. Seems that Aston Martin also uh, will have one at Silverstone. And it's not an upgrade, but um, George Russell says that uh, Silverstone should suit Mercedes slightly more. So look for some improvements there. Uh, Also, look for the weather. Uh, We're looking at about 67 Fahrenheit or 19 Celsius for qualifying day with a 19% chance of precipitation. Uh, 11 miles an hour out of the southwest or 18 kilometers an hour again on qualifying day uh that switches to uh eight miles an hour out of the northwest uh to 13 kilometers an hour um on race day precipitation drops to uh about let's say 10 percent at race time and just slightly higher temperatures 20 celsius or 68 degrees fahrenheit so just balmy yeah sounds gorgeous there yeah, sounds not exciting. <laughs> so, uh, well, I mean, uh, yeah, with the, with direct sunlight, the track probably won't be very cool, uh, despite the cool air temperatures. Um, yeah, it, like it, it does sound pretty. It does. It does not sound like there's going to be wild cards uh, dealt in. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, let's get to the standings here. Going into the British round, Max Verstappen is on top with 175 points. Sergio Perez in second with 129 to Charles Leclerc's 126. George Russell is in fourth with 111 points. Carlos Sainz in fifth with 102. We've got Lewis Hamilton with 77. Lando Norris with 50. Valtteri Bottas with 46. Esteban Ocon with 39. And Fernando Alonso in 10th with 18. Behind him, Gasly with 16. Magnussen with 15, tied with Ricardo. Vettel has 13. Yuki in 15th. Uh, with 11 points. Zhou Guan Yu has five. Alex Albon and Lance Stroll both have three points. Then we've got Mick Schumacher, Nicholas Latifi, and Nico Hogenberg still with zero. In the Constructors' Championship, Red Bull is on top with 304 points to Ferrari's 228. Mercedes closing on Ferrari with 188 points, only 40 back. Uh, McLaren is in fourth with 65 points. Alpine's in fifth with 57. Alfa Romeo's got 51. Alfa Tauri has 27. Aston Martin has 16. Ginas and Deem have 15. And Williams has three. Uh, If you'd like to join the standings yourself, you can join our Fantasy League using the link in the show notes. You can also... The show notes. You can also (laughs) send us an email... At shiftf1podcast at gmail.com or f1.cool slash emails. Many people wrote in with their stories from attending the Canadian Grand Prix. Uh, most of them new fans attending their first race, so that's really cool to see. Uh, Matt from Virginia and his wife wrote in to say that the public transit and logistics were great in Montreal uh, and that merch and food were reasonably priced. Uh, in terms of F1-specific stuff, though, Matt writes... Rain canceled our Thursday F1 experience activities. I know we had some questions about that. Um, Pushed them to Saturday along with other groups. So the pit lane walk was packed, but we still got to see Red Bull working on Perez's car after his wreck and Andrea Seidel holding court in the McLaren garage. We got to ride around the track on one of the big flatbeds and got a picture with the constructor's trophy. That's pretty cool. Uh, Part of the starter experience was tickets in turns eight and nine grandstand. 
uh, pretty limited amount of track visible, but ended up being fortuitous as it is right where Mick and Perez's cars ended up after they broke down during the race. We had enough signal to pull up the radio call in the app on Friday and Saturday, but there was no chance on Sunday, zero bandwidth. I'm, I'm glad to see that the, they're still doing that with the, I think it's the, I think it's just the F1 app um, that they still uh, feed you the radio calls if you want to listen to what is happening in the race. Um, but yeah, you need bandwidth to do it. Actually, there's an old E, I should be mentioning this whenever people ask about this stuff. There's an old E3 trick where you turn off LTE and only go on 3G mm. for your data. Apparently, it uses different signals. Or, yeah. You know, bandwidth or whatever. Because LTE so is, my, is the bane of my existence. <laughs> uh, overall, we had a blast. Montreal's a great town. We went Tuesday to Tuesday, so we had time to see and explore. That's great. P.S. The poutine count for the week was five, including once on Saturday in the rain at the track. Awesome. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Reg from Toronto attended and writes that the ability for fans to walk on the track after the race was unexpected and super cool. Uh, Reg writes, after the race was over and the marshal started to pack up, we noticed that people were crawling on the track through a small fence uh, hole uh, for the flags. Uh, within 15 minutes, the secondary fence around the track was removed and we, together with the crowds, poured through the openings between concrete walls of the track. It was a great experience to walk the track backwards all the way to the starting grid and pit stops, uh, seeing all the equipment, safety walls, and Tsunoda's car being driven away through the crowd. There were parts of it left on the track for fans to pick up. That's awesome. Imagine getting some carbon fiber uh, from your visit. Uh, I was curious if in your experience, uh, the post-race track walk is a usual experience on the other tracks as well, or if this was elevated by the absence of of the race in Montreal the last couple of years. I think this is pretty common. Uh, I, I think it's kind of like one of those unwritten things. Like they don't promote it as like, come walk the track. It's like, I don't think they want thousands of people necessarily walking around, but they, they do open it up. Um, uh, I think when we went in circuit of the Americas, they did that, but yeah, you can, there's, there's apparently if there's a crack, there are pieces of carbon fiber that they didn't pick up. Uh, there's often a lot of, uh, rubber from the, the, uh, the tires that's there. Um, and yeah, you can get close to, uh, the pits. And if, if it's soon enough after the race, sometimes there's like drivers and people milling around there. So yeah, that's, uh, definitely something, uh, to think about if you're, if you're going, uh, a few quick ones here. Ben also wrote in with some observations from Canada and tips for future attendees. Uh, Ben writes, I recommend if you go to Montreal to try for the grandstand seats, the lack of elevation makes general admission less enticing compared to a place like Cirque de Americas. Uh, this was according to friends who had been to both. Uh, there are a few choice spots, but you'd have to be committed uh, to get there in time. Uh, number two, uh, boy, I wish they had a separate screen just with the race order. The biggest difference to me watching live versus TV is I was not prepared for how much more confusion the lapped cars added. You can't see the order easily on the TV, really, at all. Uh, but it's obviously easy to sense the order at first. Then the pits happen, and the gaps increase, and I could not keep track of who was chasing who in the midfield. On TV, you are conceptually aware that cars are mixed in, but you never deal with it. The safety car was a relief to follow the last 10 laps with that resolved. Uh, number three, the vibes were fun. 
People were so happy and cheerful, mainly Checo fans. <laughs> uh, but it was a bummer when he retired right beneath our stands. Oh, sounds like you were uh, close to uh, Matt. Um, and finally, it may be easier to follow the race in Montreal if I spoke French, as there were broadcast that as there were announcers broadcasted. Yeah, generally they have like big old PA systems. Uh, but yeah, didn't think about that in in Montreal. And finally, Emily and Greg are keeping hashtag Kubica Watch 2022 alive in Montreal and sent along a photo of the one and only Robert Kubica, who was there at Circuit Gilles Villeneuve and uh, met with them and got a photo. I, so, uh, thank you, Emily and Greg. I had a friend texting me. He was, he was also at, at Montreal. Uh, and he, he also noted that um, from his like watching it from the stands, uh, I think he was by the first two corners. Um, and he was like, you can really see a lot more clearly grip levels uh, in person. Hmm. Like you can, like you just have a better sense of like how much unwanted motion cars are having at the back uh, than you do on TV. Like on TV, they look sort of deceptively smooth. Whereas like in person, it's pretty visible who is like struggling uh, like with rear grip uh, as they, as they come through a corner. So he was like, you know, we know like the Red Bull's fast, but he sort of noted the in person the Red Bull is like clearly like completely unruffled uh, as it goes through a corner like that. Whereas pretty much everyone else, you can see like the cars just start wobble uh, as, hmm. as they take these corners. Uh, and I think he also did the 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 pit thing um, and mentioned that like it was surprising how cobbled together some of the uh, like floors look. Um, in, oh. in terms of like how they are, uh, how they've been modified or or put together. Now he's specifically bringing up Mercedes, so I do wonder if it looked particularly out of sorts because they just added uh, that second stay uh, mm-hmm. to to try to fix their porpoising issues. But nonetheless, it's interesting that like if you get up close, you can sort of see the seams in where they've been trying to uh, modify a concept without having been able to fabricate an entirely new chassis. Yeah, I, I I remember from when when we went um, that the cars f- when you're when they're in your presence feel more like things that people have built, whereas when they're on TV they just they I don't know I don't know where it feels like they came from space or like they were birthed somehow yeah. like as fully glossy smooth billboards right like right like, yeah. yeah. But, you know, you, you see people in the garage working on them with the wrenches like they're, you know, it's not <laughs> they're not like, uh, you know, microprocessors. They're, you know, they're they're cars. Yeah. Um, well, that's cool. Yeah. And a bunch of people uh, mentioned that, you know, uh, the drive to survive and, you know, um, the fact that they were they were new members or new yeah members of the F1 community here with these races. So in the spirit of of that and keeping uh this podcast approachable i've got a couple newbie questions here for you rob if you want to take these yeah uh matt writes after watching this year's races i'm still not sure what the battery is for how it is used in strategy i'm not sure this was covered in the primer but would love to hear what it's for and how teams use it in a race thanks uh yeah so the battery is basically with like the cars they are referred to uh as running a uh like v6 turbo hybrid uh, engine and th- like that hybrid aspect the the one part does not exist without the other the battery primarily is used to impart a bit of extra horsepower uh to the, to the cars uh 
if they were just running on their internal combustion engine, uh, and and sometimes when the electronics do fail, uh, they end up having to. They're not competitive. They're they're much much slower. Uh, so the the battery is there to do what a battery and electric car does, which is impart a lot of uh, smoothly smoothly applied uh, extra torque uh, to to an engine right away. Where it gets dicey is that teams can play around with how much they want to store up on their battery and how much they want to discharge uh, in a given lap. Now, there there are limits to this, uh, but you'll notice uh, you'll you'll hear the announcers talk about like somebody had their uh, like energy recovery lights, their harvesting lights on, or you see the tail lights sort of blinking uh, as the uh, energy recovery systems are currently charging the battery. The cars tend to slow down a little bit. They're not discharging uh, for extra power. They're harvesting to charge up the battery. Uh, the idea being that if you if you want, you know, for one lap, you can basically blow through the entire battery uh, and have a blazing fast car. Uh, now, usually for most of race pace, teams will run at a... Uh, at a pretty hands-off setting where it will sort of charge up and discharge uh, in, a, in a pretty even cycle. But when you see two cars uh, like duking it out and they're really closely matched, they start sort of playing around with battery settings to try to figure out like, where can I save up a little extra juice to make an attack? But then the defending driver will be thinking about saving up a little extra juice to defend from an attack. I think you saw that a bit with... Um, like the the final chase between uh, Max and and Carlos Sainz, uh, where both those cars were uh, you know playing around battery settings to try and prepare for what they anticipated would be the most opportune moment for for an attack. So yeah, the the, the battery, uh, you know, in, in some ways the the thing's deceptive is we tend to think of battery as like a separate system. If we're thinking about cars, we think about the battery as like being a support for like getting the engine started and like powering uh, electronics on board the car. But like in F1, the battery is part of the engine. Uh, it is, they are two halves of a whole and that's where they sort of fit. That's where they sort of fit together. Yeah. I just want to chime in with, in addition to being able to like set, you know, a knob that says uh, we're harvesting now, uh, make it balanced or we're deploying now and we're going to go much faster on this lap. They, the drivers also have, um, most if not all of them, an overtake button. And you can see it on the steering wheel. It's often labeled OT for overtake. And you can hear the um, their engineers sometimes say, like, you're authorized to use overtake or use overtake to defend or something. Uh, and that is like on-demand battery power. So instead of like a, a map that you switch to over a, a lap, you can actually deploy it um, at will. Although that will, of course, drain your battery and uh, will have implications further in your in your race. Uh, Brian writes, was watching the race today and saw several shots of boards being held out of the pit wall when cars were going by. What information is being conveyed that couldn't be done over the radio? I could understand if the driver was having radio problems, but I don't think that was the case. Thanks. Keep up the great work. Uh, I sometimes wonder how much drivers are you like using the pit boards. Um, that now, you need pit boards around because it happens like it all like anytime you have radio communications you have radio communications failures like every yeah. team has Verstappen to just had it in the last race right they couldn't talk to him uh, at the end um 
so every every team has to prepare for how do we get critical information to the driver in case the uh like radio breaks because you're just not going to stop to troubleshoot that uh in the pits like if the radio goes down uh it's whatever you can you can put on that pit board so one it's just a vital backup system uh that they're never going to get rid of uh because in the rare cases where you need it you really really need it uh the other the, the other angle to this is there's a lot of like routine info uh that the teams will like may want to offer up to the driver but as i'm sure you've heard a lot of drivers get really touchy when someone gets in their ear uh like uh, every driver pretty much has a moment on the radio where they snap at a poor engineer uh, for having uh, talked too much or having chosen an opportune moment to open a channel. So the pit board is also a way just to like have that information available to the driver because hard though it may be to believe, they can read those. I don't know how they can read it. I don't think <laughs> I could, but they can. Uh, so you can you can put like uh, you know pretty basic info uh up there that that you want to feed to the driver uh that but you also like may want to call call attention to uh without having them sort of fuss with their in-car interface or uh or or have to hassle them over the radio so uh the the pit board is like yeah it, it's old-fashioned but it still has uh, a few use cases that the, 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 the teams keep them kicking around for yeah including for team photos when they say, you know, Hamilton P1. Yeah. Or whatever. Uh, well, cool. Thanks you, thank you, everyone, for the emails. You can also hit us up on Twitter at ShiftF1 Podcast. I'm at Drew Scanlon. That is at Rob Zachney. Danny O'Dwyer is at Danny O'Dwyer. That's us around the internet. Should we take it around the world? Let's go. Let's do it. DTM is back as a Norris ring for two races. Uh, that is in Nuremberg, Germany. Uh, Formula 2 and Formula 3 are supporting Formula 1 in Britain this weekend, as is the W Series. They are back. Uh, Formula E is in Marrakesh this weekend. We've got the NASCAR Xfinity Series at Road America in Elkhart Lake, Wisconsin for the Henry 180 I don't know who Henry is or why he's changed his mind. Uh, Motocross Grand Prix is in Indonesia in Jakarta. Uh, the WeatherTech Sports Car Championship is at the Canadian Tire Motorsports Park for the Sports Car Grand Prix. Uh, well, I found, out what, I found out what Henry is. Oh? Uh, it's a gun manufacturer. Okay. <laughs> hey, Henry, read the room. Yeah. Uh, IndyCar is at Mid-Ohio for the Honda Indy 200. That's in Lexington, Ohio. The World Rally Cross Championship is in... Oh, boy. Uh, Holies Motorstadion for the World RX of Sweden. And we got NASCAR... Also at Road America for this 4th of July weekend. For the Quick Trip 250 presented by Jockey Made in America. Just clean underwear. That's what we need. 
as Americans. By the way, and I Formula One. I Go should ahead. just note. Okay, it's not like Henry is out here making like AR-15s. Like if you pull up the Henry inventory, they make old timey rifles. Uh, <laughs> so like this, this is like uh, if you think about like going out to learn how to hunt and stuff like that um like or stuff that john wayne might use in a in an old western <laughs> that that tends to be uh what what the henry company uh is making so it is like uh sporting rifles not stuff with like massive semi-automatic clips uh Got like no, nobody's taking henry's into war okay unless it's the revolutionary one yeah, or, or keep your powder dry, everyone. We've got Formula One coming up Friday, July 1st, 8 a.m. Eastern time is when Free Practice One kicks off on ESPNU, followed by Free Practice Two at 11 a.m., also on ESPNU. Saturday, July 2nd, Free Practice Three is at 7 a.m. Eastern on ESPN Two, followed by qualifying at 10 a.m. Eastern, also ESPN Two. But the race, everyone, Sunday, July 3rd, at 10 a.m. Eastern Time on ESPN2, The Deuce. Final thoughts, Rob? Uh, I am... You know, I'm, I'm fully expecting, uh, like, a bit more Red Bull dominance, but I am also curious, like, whose upgrades... Like, who, who can sort of get back in it for this season uh, with, with these upgrades? Yeah, who promising? could look good? Yeah. Well, that's the other thing, right? Is if you if you actually sort of lop off Red Bull, uh, and even Red Bull actually with the, like has enough reliability issues that like the constructors that not is not necessarily a given. Um, yeah. But like everybody, I think had like maybe with the exception of like Williams, has to be looking at the season feeling like they're leaving tons of points on the board. Williams and mm-hmm. Mercedes, right? Mercedes is lucky to have gotten what they've gotten. And Williams seems to once again like be at sea, but everyone else, including Haas, right? Like there are just so many teams that like you should have had better results. And mm-hmm. maybe it's some of that effect we talked about with Ferrari, where it's like it's one thing to get a car qualified up toward the front of the grid. It's another thing to like learn how to race and keep it there. Uh, cause that definitely seems like it's been the story for outfits like uh, Alpine or especially Haas. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Uh, Maybe some fortunes can turn around in Britain. Uh, If you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our bonus episodes and the official Shift F1 Discord, you can do so over at patreon.com, patreon.com slash shift F1. Have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week. Next week.